Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I am Joe Sullivan, and along with Tom Rombach, we're hosting this episode, which is being recorded for the National Conference of Bar Presidents for their 2021 virtual annual meeting. I'm a former bar president of the State Bar of Montana and current treasurer of NCBP. Tom is a former president of the State Bar of Michigan and a former NCBP executive council member. NCBP, as a national network, brings together current and past leaders of state, metropolitan, and uh, affinity bar associations to share ideas about how to address critical issues facing the legal profession. Now I'll turn it over to Tom to introduce our guest. Thanks, Joe. Joining us now, we have Justice Dino Hamonas from the Utah Supreme Court. Welcome to the show, Justice. Thank you for having me. This is my pleasure. Before we get started, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a native Utahn, uh, born and raised, uh, father of two wonderful daughters, and married to my wife of some 32 years now. Uh, was a trial court judge for 11 years in our court of general jurisdiction and elevated to the Utah Supreme Court in, in 2015. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, we're here today to discuss regulation in the practice of law. What is changing in this area and why? As a basic question, while we often use the term regulatory sandbox, some of our listeners might not be familiar with the term. Can you give us a brief explanation of what this term means and what the topic covers? Sure. So a a regulatory sandbox is someplace where, generally speaking, innovators can come in, uh, ask for relaxed regulation or bespoke regulation to allow them to try uh, an idea within a particular sphere, whether it be uh, the tech sector, the med sector, you name it. Uh, more specifically, if we're talking about a legal regulatory sandbox, it, it's someplace where traditional providers of legal services, so think primarily lawyers, also think in some jurisdictions like, like Utah, licensed legal practitioners, including paralegals, can offer non-traditional legal services, or non-traditional providers can offer traditional or non-traditional legal services. Uh, Justice Simonis, could you please explain your partnership with the state bars? Yes, thanks, Tom. Thanks for that question, too. So the the legal regulatory sandbox in Utah uh, started when the then president of the state bar, myself, the chief justice from the Utah Supreme Court, and a few others uh, were in Washington for conference of, of of chief justices and court administrators. And we had the wonderful opportunity to hear Professor Jillian Hadfield speak um, about regulatory reform. Uh, Shortly after listening to Professor Hadfield, we we kind of, you know, hunkered down around a table and thought, uh, what are we going to do about this? This is a wonderful idea, and and it's something we ought to explore. Uh, Ultimately, what happened is under... uh, John Lund's leadership, and then his successor, Dixon Burton, uh, the the Utah Bar asked the Utah Supreme Court 
to form a, a task force, kind of a you know a joint task force, to evaluate using a sandbox um, and other regulatory reforms that might be helpful to help access or bridge the access to justice gap. Uh, since that time, uh, with bar leadership involved in in the innovation office, we've we've kind of you know marched um, not not always hand in glove, but largely together. Uh, down this path. Uh, one of the additional things that the state bar has undertaken uh, outside of the court is really try to help educate its members as, as to what's going on with the sandbox and how they best might take opportunities um, and develop opportunities within it. So, Justice, why should this be important to bar leaders in other states, whether it's a state bar leader, a metropolitan bar leader, whether they be mandatory or voluntary? Why is the concept of using a sandbox uh, in the concepts dealing with uh, regulation of a, a given state important? Look, the short answer to that is, is we need to do something to solve the access to justice crisis that's been going on in this country and just getting worse and worse, right? I, I, I've not looked... I think the, the most recent data I've seen from the World Justice Institute had us at 109th out of 128 countries when it came to access and affordability of our civil legal system and dead last among the industrialized or wealthy countries of the, of the world. Uh, and for decades, you know, nigh on 100 years, we've been trying to solve that problem uh, by volunteering ourselves across the gap. And that's just never going to happen. And I want to be clear. Look, lawyers have been incredibly generous with their time. Right? The pro bono efforts and other efforts, uh, they, they, they have done yo person's work in that regard. Uh, but it's just not solved the problem. The problem's just growing worse and worse. So uh, what we did in Utah and what I would tell state bars across uh, the country they need to be concerned about is, is figuring out how to really make systemic change that will address that problem. Because if we don't address that problem, we're going to be facing a much bigger crisis. Justice, what are some examples of regulatory innovations that you've undertaken in Utah and perhaps in some other states? Outside of just the, the regulatory reform um, effort that we're in terms of the sandbox. Uh, we've licensed paralegals to provide legal advice in the areas of debt collection, landlord, tenant, and family law. We've recently uh, authorized individuals who just get a one-year degree, a master's of law, to be able to provide legal advice as well. Uh, we've structured an online dispute resolution program. Really, it's it's online dispute resolution court in a way. It's it's uh, how all small claims will be done, small claims cases, civil small claims cases, I should say, in the state by year's end, right? Uh, and the biggest the biggest project though that we've undertaken has been this regulatory reform project. And along with that, right, we we've substantially changed the advertising and solicitation rules. Uh, we've changed the 5.4, the rule against outside ownership, and we've created the legal regulatory sandbox. So when we talk about the sandbox, is my understanding correct? It gives you a chance to kind of experiment with something. You don't have to decide yes or no, we're going to accept this new process. We're going to let you run for a while and we're going to keep track of it. And I'm curious, Bose, if that concept is correct, how do you keep track of it? It's exactly right, right? The, the whole concept of a sandbox is, is the piloting of, of a project. So 
you you will come in and, and make application. Let's say you've got some, you know, fancy gizmo that you think uh, based on AI or, um, you know, some similar algorithm is going to be able to give really great legal advice to people. Um, and, and you want to make sure you're authorized to to for that to happen. And maybe you're a non-lawyer and, and you want to roll that out. So you will come into the sandbox and then working with experts within the sandbox, determine what risk category you fall into, low, low to medium, medium, medium to high, high. And depending on that risk category, then there'll be kind of a, a, an assessed set of metrics and, and data uh, that will be collected uh, you know, on, on a ongoing basis. Uh, as as the innovation office in Utah, and ultimately the court evaluates your project and and whether your project is offering a, a benefit to the consumer, or put differently, unless you're trying to figure out if your your project is harming the consumer in any way, right? Is it leading to unnecessary upselling? Is it giving poor advice? You know, is, are there demonstrably worse outcomes? Those types of things. And in a real-time basis, we're monitoring that data. Uh, we're also using secret shoppers, right? Auditing, those types of mechanisms to try to discern uh, whether this product that you're, you've come up with or this provider is really offering a service to the public. What are other states doing in their regulatory sandboxes? So Utah is the only state that has a legal regulatory sandbox in place and operating. It was, again, to my knowledge, the first in the world. Uh, British Columbia followed shortly afterwards. And other provinces and states are now evaluating uh, the prospect of, of implementing a sandbox. So notably, California, Florida, Washington, I understand, has just asked its bar to take a look at it as well, and several other states uh, to think about, you know, kind of this implementing this this type of model. Other states like Arizona have taken a somewhat different approach where they're not using a sandbox, uh, but they've rewritten 5.4 to allow for outside ownership of, you know, kind of an outside, a different business structure to offer legal services. So, Different regulatory approaches taking place, all with an eye to seeing if we can't do something to really manage the access to justice crisis. So if I'm a state bar leader in another state that hasn't yet done anything, how easy is it to replicate what Utah's done? And what would you suggest an individual, say like a current state bar president, uh, what steps should they take? So the, the first thing I would do is kind of educate myself about uh, this entire process. And there are a lot of resources out there, uh, printed material, articles, and organizations uh, that, that can help that state bar leadership, uh, you know, whether it be the National uh, Center for State Courts, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, informal groups. And, and I would first look to kind of gather information, right, and inform myself on, on what's going on. Uh, within those organizations, then, or within the the like, let me use Utah as an example, uh, you, you can assess information to try to inform how to proceed. In Utah, we, we've just applied for a grant with the State Justice Institute uh, to allow us to develop a, a monograph and a best practices uh, manuals that we can share with other states that 
specifically with this in mind about kind of for soup to nuts, how to go about the process and lessons we've learned along the way. Uh, in terms of benefiting Utah, it'll also serve as the memorialization of the lessons that we've learned uh, and as educational material for future future participants in our innovation office, uh, future participants in the sandbox, future members of the Supreme Court. So that is to come. But even, you know, looking at the websites now and some of the manuals on the websites, those leaders will have a pretty good idea of how to go about the process. The legal profession has been resistant to change. What has generally been the reaction? Well, so Tom, been fortunate in Utah that not only with the, the, the sandbox, uh, but with a number of different reforms like the licensed paralegal program, that state bar leadership has been, you know, not, not as I said, not hand in glove. I mean, there have been times, particularly with the sandbox, where there's been some differences, but really supportive of the idea of narrowing the gap and ultimately supportive of these, of these different areas. That is a far cry, though, from saying that the, the rank and file all support it. You know, so what we've seen in the comments across the country uh, to propose sandboxes and other regulatory reform is a supermajority, so two to one against uh, when we're talking about comments from lawyers about these type of reforms. What we've also seen, however, when the public has been surveyed is a similar supermajority in favor of these changes. For example, Arizona two years ago ran uh, a public study looking at whether the public supported non-lawyers providing legal advice. So it was just over 80% of the public uh, supported that notion. Um, they were they also asked about outside ownership, non-legal ownership of law firms, right? Redoing 5.4 after some explanation in the study. Uh, again, a supermajority supported that notion. So uh, lawyers, two to one against uh, rank and file, public, two to one or more in favor of these changes. And that harkens back to a question that you asked a minute ago about why uh, state bars should care about this. You know, the, the, the public is, I mean, that time is coming uh, when, when the public is, is maybe kind of had enough of, of the way that the courts and bars have been administering the practice of law, uh, and I can't say that I would blame them. Right? I, I recently read an article in the Atlantic that indicated that lawyers in the United States, on average, make twice as much as lawyers in any other part of the world. And um, you know, as a lawyer uh, and as someone who's funding a daughter in, in law school, I can say, uh, look, that's great. Um, but we have to confront reality. We're not twice as fast or twice as smart as, as other lawyers. Um, and there's a protectionistic element that's, that's leading to that. And that's hurting the public. So kind of a follow-up to that question is that, okay, you're in a Western state. I'm in a Western state. We pride ourselves on our independence. Take yourself away from the bar leadership who is, when you're explaining what you just explained, it's kind of like preaching to the choir. And you go to that uh, solo practitioner or somebody that has that independent streak, and they basically say, stop regulating me. Just let me practice law. Leave me alone. Why are you changing? It's worked for 100 years kind of thing. The first thing I would say is not worked. That, that's just, uh, 
I mean, that that's flatly belied by the, the data. Um, if, if by work we mean that, that most Americans uh, can access the civil legal system, then it's not worked. Right? We Study after study is demonstrating that over 80% of the civil legal needs of, of Americans are going unmet. And that's not, let's be clear about this. We're not just talking about those that are at the federal minimum poverty guidelines, right? Recent California survey showed that at study at six times of, of the minimum poverty levels, 78% of the civil legal needs of its citizens were going unmet. So uh, it might be working for the lawyers, leading to those lawyers making twice as much as their, you know, compatriots in other states, or excuse me, other countries, but it's not working for the public. Uh, and that is really, you know, where the, the ultimate regulator, the Supreme Courts of the states or other ultimate regulators, that is to whom they owe their, their fealty, right? It is the public, not the bar. Uh, so I would say to those individuals, look, one, um, this is going to help you, not hurt you. Uh, and try to explain to them the size of the unmet legal needs market and how removing some of these restrictions is going to allow them to access some of that market. Two, I would point to empirical data coming out of the the UK, uh, where the Legal Services Act has been in place for some time and allowing, for example, for non non uh, legal ownership of firms to demonstrate that it's not hurt lawyers. And three, I would just go back to how I opened these comments by saying, at the end of the day, if I'm wrong about it, and a few lawyers make a little less money so that the public writ large can get better and more legal services, then that is the moral thing to do. On that optimistic note, uh, we've reached the end of the road for this episode. I want to thank our guest, Justice Dina Homonis, for joining us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Please visit ncbp.org to find more about the National Conference of Bar Presidents. If you like what you've heard, please rate and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. Thank you. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.